We must remember that while we physicians are privileged members of a select vocation, we are not deities, nor are we constituents of a caste system that towers above the downtrodden of society, writes Dr. Paul Rousseau. You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Rousseau, Chief of the Department of Geriatrics. Geriatrics at the Carl T. Hayden Veterans Administration Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona, and author of the Peace of Mind essay in the May 2007 Journal of the American Medical Association titled Rounds. Dr. Rousseau, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you for having me. Why do you believe physicians need reminders that they are not deities? Because as physicians, it seems that we are members of a privileged segment of society. And I believe if physicians look at themselves honestly and look at their daily life, they realize that physicians have been somewhat put up on a pedestal. We have this ability to really control life and death many, many times in our patients' lives. And so I think we need to be reminded we're nothing more than a human that was able to go to medical school and get some training and be able to care for other patients. And it's one of my my favorite sayings, that we're just one human caring for another human. Tell us the story you write about in your JAMA essay. The story I write about in, in my JAMA essay was about my wife. She was 52 years old and diagnosed 18 months prior with scleroderma. And she had scleroderma that was a rapidly progressive form of scleroderma. It affected her lungs, her liver, her heart, her gastrointestinal tract, her vascular system. And the story I write about was her admission to a major medical center that we took her to originally in hopes of a lung transplant. Uh, She was deemed not appropriate for a lung transplant, sent back home, went into congestive heart failure, was readmitted. And the story is about her 14-day stay there, many of the days in the intensive care unit. And the way we were treated by the primarily the intensive care unit uh, team, and by team I mean physicians, not nurses, respiratory therapists, or or the um, ancillary personnel. You suggest in your essay that when you were a young doctor, you and your colleagues treated patients differently. Explain. When I was in my training, which was a long, long time ago, 20-some years ago, I was fortunate enough to have a mentor that believed you sit and you talk and you listen to patients. He did not believe in rounds where the first thing you said was the CBC showed or the chest x-ray showed or the CHEM 14 showed. What he wanted to know is what did the patient tell you? And today when we have our house staff come through and they present a case, one of the first things I will hear is after the history of present illness is the white blood cell count was this, the potassium was this, uh, on and on, not so much what the patient told them and what they discussed with the patient, but it seems to be x-rays, labs, and all of these type of things, and not this really down-to-earth, one-to-one patient-physician relationship. How do you teach your staff to approach the patient on rounds? 
Well, my staff, the staff I work with, they're very good. The house staff we get, we try to instill in them that it's a human being. It's not a disease. And as I said in my essay, when my wife was ill and the team made rounds, her disease was relevant. She was not. And what we try to teach is that the person is relevant. The disease is secondary. The disease affects that person. So, yes, that person may have heart failure. They may have lung disease. But it's it's Mr. Jones or Mr. Roberts that's sick, and that's what we have to remember, and that's what we still instill is that you need to speak to the person, and you need to remember it's the person that is sick. You suggest in your essay that perhaps the rigorous training that ensues during the residency years generates an emotional egress of what attracted physicians to the profession in the first place. Talk more about this. When I was a resident, we did not have restrictions on the number of admissions we could have. And and recently, there have been restrictions on the number of hours that residents can work. But when you admit patients and you have to have a service of 10 or 12 or 14 patients or even more, and you've got rounds and you're checking on labs and you're on call every second day or every third day, it's so easy to forget that that's a human being that you're taking care of. And you get frustrated when a nurse calls you and says, Mr. Jones needs this or that. And you suddenly find yourself distancing yourself from that patient, and and they become more a pain in the butt, quite literally, than they do this human being. And I think also part of it is mentors. And in my essay, speaking very honestly, the medical students and residents that attended my wife in the intensive care with this intensive care attending, he was their mentor, and what he showed them was not the way to practice medicine. It was totally ignoring the patient and only looking at the chart, looking at labs and and looking at x-rays. And so we have so many patients and so many pressures and, and so much to do that the patient becomes secondary. And I think we have to remember not to do that. And and one of the things that you can do is we tell our house staff to keep a parallel chart. And you do the one chart where you tell me all the scientific stuff and the other chart where you write about the person as an individual. Dr. Rousseau, did you ever say anything to the doctors who treated your wife more like a disease instead of a person? You know, I wish I would say that I did, but I was in such shock at her illness, at her deteriorating condition, and realized in my own mind that she was dying, that no, I did not. What I needed to have there was an advocate, and my sister-in-law was there. She was the one that actually did the advocacy component of this because as a loved one, and I think this is very important for doctors to remember, as a loved one, it was difficult for me many days to get together the questions that I actually wanted to ask or to respond to some of the cold treatment that we received. Fortunately, I had a sister-in-law there that spoke up and asked these questions and said, why can't we do this? What's going on here? You really do need that advocate, but we need to remember that that person that's caring for a loved one, and particularly when you know your loved one's dying, you don't always hear what the doctors say. You can't generate these questions. And as doctors, we need to be aware of that. How do you respond to those who suggest that maybe your perception of what happened could have been influenced by the fact that your wife was dying? That is a very good question. And in fact, in the essay, it was not specifically stated it was my wife. And the only thing I can say is, Having gone through this, when you do have a loved one, a husband, a wife, or a very close 
a member of your family that's dying, it really does not matter what your profession is. You get tossed into this turbulence that's called caregiver. And it doesn't matter if you're a doctor. It doesn't matter if you're not a doctor. You suddenly find yourself just so emotionally overcome that your profession doesn't matter anymore. I mean, they mentioned drugs that when I think back, I should have known, but I'm going, well, what is that drug? And, and I full well know now what the drug was, but at the time, you cannot, you, you just can't take it all in and understand it and, and sort through it all. What's your best advice to patients and families who feel weak, susceptible, and exposed in a foreign medical environment that magnifies their fears? What you have to do is you have to speak up. And as I just mentioned, the best thing is to have somebody that is your advocate, be it a family member that can speak up or or a close friend or, or someone that's there that has a little bit of detachment that can say, wait a minute, what's going on here? I want to know this. I want to know that. What, what I would do was talk with my sister-in-law later, and we would have these discussions, and she would say, well, Paul, this is what happened. And I said, wow, you know, I, I didn't even realize that was happening. And I said, when they come in tomorrow, can you bring this up? Because I won't remember it. So having an advocate is the greatest thing you can do. Do you believe any progress is being made in terms of the palliative and hospice curriculum in medical school? Yes, I do, and and that's fortunate. This year, hospice and palliative medicine has become a formal subspecialty recognized by the American Board of Medical Specialties. There will be a a board examination in 2008. What evidence-based medicine may say may not work for a dying patient, and, and we have to realize that. It's such a special area of medicine that we don't always do what other doctors do. And by that, I mean it may say, well, you can only use drug A for this. Well, sometimes drug A works in a different way for a dying patient. And so I just want physicians to remember that. You discuss writing the ship in your essay. How do you propose to improve the way doctors treat patients? Well, I think it's going to be, number number one, by what you asked earlier, we do have more and more training programs being developed Hospice and palliative medicine is being incorporated into curriculums, and though it may be a small, and I mean a very small component of of, of many medical schools and training programs curriculum, it is making its headway in. Also, by having programs in medical centers, medical students and medical residents, surgical residents, all residents, are being exposed to hospice and palliative care. And we need time to develop these mentors that are going to be out there and instill appreciation for end-of-life care and and, and hospice and palliative medicine in uh, our future doctors. The other thing that some doctors have proposed is mandatory education for physicians in this area. And I will tell you, as a physician, if there's mandatory education, you'll do the least you can if it's not an area of interest. You'll do a mail-in test. You'll do something. So I'm not certain that, that mandatory education is the way to go. Other people have said make uh, end-of-life education requirement for medical relicensure or new licensure. Once again, that becomes a component of education. You'll do it the, the easiest way you can do it, and you won't get much from it. I think the best way is by instilling programs in medical centers and medical schools and other physicians seeing these role models providing good hospice and palliative medicine. What's your take-home message? My take-home message is be there with the patient. Walk this walk, no, no matter how difficult it gets. And even if the patient makes decisions, 
that don't fall along the line of the decisions you have made. Be there with them. Listen to them. And I think what physicians don't really realize, and we seem to forget it, is that we have this magical and mystical presence when we're around patients and their families. And I work with nurse practitioners, and frequently they'll go in, and and the refrain I hear over and over is, they want to see the doctor. And I think it's important for us to remember that we have this magical and mystical presence. And the other thing is to remember the words you say are remembered by patients. Dr. Rousseau, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your JAMA essay titled Rounds. Thank you for having me. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.